This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're talking about Dune. Dune, the 1965 novel. Dune, the 2021 film. Dune, the 2021 object of discussion by people interested in politics. And we're going to start off, as we always do, with Helen. Okay. Kick us off. I'm like the, the stooge in the, in the uh, little section of the military who's going to go and tread on all the landmines. And I say this because we were um, sharing some articles um, in various sort of online platforms. And it really was all about, you know, what's the right interpretation? What's the right ethical interpretation? What's the right political position in relation to do? And it sort of really is sort of like, oh, shit, I said the wrong thing. I've said the wrong thing. And um, it's something that has been really, you know, pissing me off recently. Um, perhaps wokeism, you know, I've said this for a little while that I think that this sort of um, disciplinary um, very aesthetic leftism, which I think actually falls outside the philosophical definitions of leftism, is the new woke, um, is the new um, uh, rendering one. So we have material precarity um, and, you know, with the tendency of the rate of profits decline, all these various factors, capital mobility, et cetera, you know, putting a squeeze on a lot of people. Um, another way to make sure that we we stay in line and remain um, disciplinable is this sort of level of do you have the correct inner thoughts? Are you an ethical person? And so this was to do with this film, June. We, we shared various art, uh, articles, Benjamin shared various articles, you know, sort of are we allowed to enjoy June? Is June a fascist film? And it is really terrible that, you know, um, we can no longer enjoy without the fear of having the wrong opinion. So we we might in the past uh, several years have to have um, towed the line in terms of some discourse, in terms of saying the right thing, making sure that we um, you know bow our heads to a certain explicit position. But this is some sort of at the level of our own enjoyment, our own subjectivity, our own unconscious, our own taste our own beliefs, our own unconscious beliefs. Are we a good or bad person? And uh, I think part of the idea of, you know, is this a fascist film <laughs> is um, to do with, I think there was a question of Orientalism. I think that Orientalism isn't just about the aesthetics of Orientalism, so the aesthetics of colonialism, but rather to do with um, the aspiration of filling up an existential lack on the part of the colonizer and it can it can take any form um but maybe structurally it revolves around this a desperation to to quell lack um and also sort of the magic dimension of this film is sort of um religious quality but i think very much that, that this uh this disciplinary um this sort of uh, being able to cast your hand over the palm and the eyes of the person you are analyzing and saying, this is a bad person, this is a good person, is highly religious and highly authoritarian. So yes, I just, I really do feel that this, this precarity, this subjective precarity, you know, we have material precarity in the past, you know, workers, or still today, workers might have felt precarious and also very much exploited if you're on a certain side of uh, surplus value. But, you know, you might all be able to um, bandy together at your, in your place of work and say a big fuck you to the, to the boss. Or at least you could um, uh, 
you know, you, you, you engage in some work, but you still have your, your soul where you can feel anger towards, towards um, an individual. And we sort of, we talked about this a lot in the early uh, podcasts in relation to the British royal family, you know, so how the royal family could be seen as a sort of like cohesive measure of a society, sort of a, a, a form of scapegoat where people, you know, the resentment is sort of projected upon them in a uni- unifying way. And obviously, as, as a royal family becomes woke, that becomes more and more impossible. And the contradiction of the society is more and more and more aesthetically repressed. So, yes, in terms of, you know, the new, new modes of work, um, obviously, that this sort of workers in a factory banding together is maybe indicative of a certain class in a certain moment, but sort of the freelancer who um, is perpetually selling themselves has no connection with other people, is their own boss, and also you know is is a is a precarious educated person. Um, not only you know can they can they not have um, a sense of anger and resentment at, at their condition, but they must always have the correct posture the correct assessment, the correct ethical position, even though this position really, because not to be prescriptive, because, you know, I hope that we we don't fall into this category of you should think this, this is the right way to think about something because people can think whatever they bloody want. But there is a truth. And I think that a lot of these sort of like, um, I think you use the term discourse mage-esque um, articles are complete obfuscation. They're not truth seeking. You know, we can have a literary analysis of a film that can can provide many insights, many different opinions, but sort of prescriptive, um, and I would say obfuscatory, highly ideological um, interpretation, which is very much in line with the sort of Vox video. You must think this, you must think that. But at least the Vox video is more explicitly sort of um, cack-handed in its in its approach, more more explicitly sort of basic and more explicitly not about something to do with your own individual morals. I thought this was I thought this was highly worrying. And it is something that I feel, you know, oh, oh have we said the wrong thing in this podcast? Oh, did we say the wrong thing here? Oh, five years ago, somebody said this, that, the other. Oh, when we talked about uh, Twilight, did we correctly say that the vampires are the aristocrats and we're not on the side of the vampires? Do you know what I mean? It's, this, it's sort of ridiculous. But of course, part of the point is that it's ever shifting. So yes, I, I by text I got very emotionally charged about this. I find it very worrying, and I find it very stressful, and I find it sad that this is uh, where the, the sort of left liberal space is. And I think it is nothing to do with really what the left is. We could say philosophically speaking, which is refusing to turn contradiction into opposition. And here we are turning, we are inwardly turning a contradiction to opposition. The opponent is ourselves. Are we somebody who we can, you know, we're commodifying our inner, inner space. Can we discipline and can we ensure that we are the correct person um, who is unblemishable and therefore can continue to be at least somewhat employable in whatever sort of scape we're working in? Aside from that, I did enjoy this film. I saw it in the cinema a couple of weeks ago, but I had to leave halfway through because I wasn't feeling well. Um, so I didn't get a good impression of it the first time, but I sat down and watched the whole thing myself. It's sort of um, slightly unusual for a contemporary film. 
in that it's quite um, loose in its narrative structure, sort of has a kind of poetic sense. I think, I think it gets away with it for a number of reasons. Firstly, because it's a, it's a text that's known to a lot of people, so they're able to sort of follow along with the story. I've never watched any other version of Dune. I've never w- read the novel, so I was a bit lost the first time when I wasn't feeling very well. Um, interestingly enough, a friend of mine who's a film school composer really detested the school. So he felt it was too intrusive. There was too much of it. I'm somebody who uh, overdoes school so much because I love music and film. So, you know, this criticism goes to me as well, but it, you know, it's quite heavy handed. And I think precisely because it has this loose narrative, it really needed to um, point to uh, how we should um, experience the film so that people didn't get lost. Um, I think also, you know, Denny Villeneuve, in my opinion, is the greatest living uh, director. Incendie is one of the greatest films ever made. He's made an extraordinary range of films. Um, so I think, you know, he's able to get away with something that's a bit sort of looser in its narrative structure. So, yeah, no, I, I did enjoy it. I appreciated uh, the um, sort of reflexive, uh, loose, poetic style. It was interesting. I mean, it's very, um, as I said, I, hadn't, I haven't seen the other versions of Dune and I imagine they are maybe a bit more psychedelic. I, I think they could possibly have been a bit more psychedelic in this film. There was a real kind of sense of, um, the clinical, I think somebody in one of these articles ta- um, talked about a sort of um, Apple-esque aesthetic, but I think he sort of uh, was uh, the sort of temple of temple of Silicon Valley, you know, the sort of a clean minimalist aesthetic. And, um, you know, there, there's a certain truth to it in terms of Denis Villeneuve's films. Um, but I think that that weirdly in this article, for example, this is we're talking about June itself, not these articles, but I did get a little bit riled up by these articles. There was this sort of weird um, crossing of the wires between the perspective, as in whose whose aesthetic are we talking about? Are we talking about the director as an in, as a non death of the author director? Which is a weird thing in terms of um, these these uh, castigatory articles that we're talking about, which I'll come back to in a second. Um, or is this on the part of the characters? So sort of a perspective. It's the thing who was talking about the, um, you know, the very o- obese baddie. Harkonnen, I think is the name. Um, where I think the, the most sort of Apple-esque aesthetics were, which I think, uh, again, some of these articles were accusing these, this film of being uh, sort of having this sort of fascist element to it. But Perhaps we could say that there is a truth to using an Apple-esque aesthetic with these um, sort of neo-feudalist organizations like these houses, right? Because I think, you know, obviously there is a neo-feudalist element to uh, where we're going with um, Apple, etc., Although um, it'll be interesting to see. I don't know if you saw actually at this um, festival that you were at recently, Nina, in Ljubljana, there was a... The talk between Yanis Varoufakis and Zizek and um, Varoufakis was very much on the side of the fact that, you know, we don't, we no longer in capitalism, we live in some kind of feudalism. Obviously, feudalism kind of has to structure with a promise after death of something that you will get. Otherwise, it's just pure violence. So I'm not sure I like fully agree with him. But yes, in this, this world, it's pure violence and what have you. But there is a religious element. But to go back to this death of the author thing, I thought it was really weird these analyses of this this film that you shared, Benjamin, where it was sort of a reading of the psyche of the of the um, filmmaker rather than the object, or the object as a cultural product, but kind of doing both at the same time, which is sort of like a 
not supposed to do of literary analysis. But I sort of feel like there's this weird move now with these sort of, um, can you enjoy this? Ethical consumerism, beyond ethical consumerism, sort of, you know, Coke without caffeine in a Zizekian sense, enjoyment with, without enjoyment, you know, movie watching with, having the right, you know, moral perspective, where there's a death of the author and birth of the reader. But the birth of the reader is not sort of like we interpret as we please and we protect ourselves. We are sort of like this, the zombification of the reader where, where we are the consumerist living dead, where we are hijacked by ideology, where we must, we are bitten by ideology and must act as if an independent person enjoying whilst at the same time having the correct view. And I think it's really sad as a maker, I, I I have felt this for a long time. I mean, obviously, um, as things are becoming more, um, you know, corporatists, highly capitalized in every sort of realm in which we live, that there's no space outside the market, that art has been sold out to capital full stop, that there is already an ideological pressure but this ideological pressure in terms of what it says about you as a maker, what it says about the the viewer, that the viewer cannot read in, it cannot see within any form of sort of like bad thought. It's terribly bad. It's much worse than sort of an explicit um, authoritarian kind of, um, what do you call it? Censorship. If we have a sort of an explicit thing, if we can say this and we can't say that, at least there's some enjoyment, we can sort of have a laugh at it, we can get our message in sort of, you know, but through the back door, there are sort of explicit rules. But here the terrain is always changing. You would constantly unsettled, constantly rendered anxious. And as we've said many times before, the more anxious, the more we turn towards authoritarian thinking, the more we uh, turn towards oppositional thinking, the more we sustain a fantasy, a utopia somewhere else through this oppositional thinking. And the more we are brought into the toxic market system, which then generates the whole thing again. So yes, I was very perturbed. I enjoyed the film. I don't know where it's going to end because I haven't read the book. So I can't say if it has a fascist perspective. Maybe it does. Who knows? Um, But I was very perturbed by this trend in the online um, writings related to it, the discourse related to it. Very sad. All right, Nina, you're up. Right. So I'm I'm not uh, someone who's was already into the Dune mythoverse or the, the whole thing, which many people are. Um, you know, people memorize the little mantra about fear and you know, people are kind of obsessed with 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 Dune, I think, some people. And uh so I, I've seen the the documentary about Jodorowsky's attempted uh, making of June, which is an extremely funny and amusing and interesting documentary. And I, I do feel sad that we, we live in the world in which Jodorowsky didn't get to make his version of June, because I think it would have um, really gone into the psychoanalytic aspects of the of the worms and, uh, you know, the, the meaning of spice. And I, I think it's, it's these, these aspects, the spice and, and worms that I find the most uh, intriguing in some ways. Um, I, I, so I watched the the new version. I've seen the Lynch one a long time ago, but I didn't have a chance to to rewatch it. And I, I read a few hundred pages of the of the book, um, but I didn't finish the the first um, 
book. I think there are others in the series, right? So I went to watch the the film. Um, and yeah, I have, I have to say, I, I, I found it kind of a sort of unpleasant <laughs> overall. I would say this kind of um, sort of, it, it feels like being kind of bashed over the head with the spectacle and the, this kind of incredibly loud, overbearing soundtrack that Helen already mentioned, who's, who's friend, Helen's friend objected to, to Hans Zimmer's score. And I, I really agree. There's, some, there's something kind of, it, it's like a kind of simulacrum of a, of a score, but sort of ramped up to 11 um, so that you're sort of so bewildered and overwhelmed by the, by the pulsing sound of the drums and this kind of, you know, sort of, uh, yeah, sort of oriental sounds and these kind of epic that you, but you're, you're sort of, you feel like you're sort of supposed to think epic. And then there's so much sort of fighting and I, you know, it's like a kind of action film. Whereas, you know, the, the, the few hundred pages of the book I've read and, and Jodorowsky's take, I think, you know, not, not that I can really invoke that, but I, I think there's this whole other aspect, which is kind of actually literally buried in this new film. Like you, you often can't hear what the, the people are saying. And I, this is a very strange aspect of contemporary cinema. I don't know what on earth is going on. It's almost like they don't want you to hear what the characters are actually speaking. And I don't think I was in a particularly bad cinema. It wasn't like a huge cinema or anything, but it was... You know, there's something I also about the kind of ideas that are very present in the book, obviously, in terms of the kind of mythic and the religious aspect, these different kind of groups like the Bene Gesserit. And, you know, everyone has their kind of little skills and their tactics and they're very psychological and very interesting. This is something kind of, you know, and, and some of them, they have like disciplines and, and some of them have like, you know, different powers so they can read telepathically and they can sort of predict little things and they can understand each other in different ways. And and this is quite an interesting aspect because it, it sort of presents a kind of ambivalent world in which people are kind of competing sometimes for the same things, but using different um, techniques. Um, there are kind of questions about history and myth and the way and all of these kind of mythical ideas of paths and, and destiny Um and in the film, this this new version of the film, I think all of that is kind of absolutely buried, um, it, and also at the level just at the level of basic psychological motivation. Like, it, it, and I think what this does is actually kind of more fascist in a way. So I don't think this film was fascist, but I think there's something about this kind of fashion shoot type way of presenting characters, which which reduces the actors if you like to their face to to the their very sort of basic um genetics in a certain way like so you have the kind of uh i don't know like the the maori type warrior you have the the asian man who that who's who in the in the book his motivation for treachery is like very complicated and convoluted and he goes into great detail but in the film you have absolutely no idea why he's doing this stuff until later on um and i think this kind of the the visual reduction of everyone to their face and to their kind of what they can do rather than character development rather than psychology rather than their motivation or their tie to a particular group it's, it's explored a tiny bit in the film maybe with the Benny Gesserit um, aspect but really nothing compared to the to the book and I I think there's something kind of really reductive about this kind of globalized Hollywood image of the world in which people are simply different by virtue of the way they look but within that difference there is no room or very little room for any kind of psychological motivation, character development or anything like that. So everyone is kind of reduced in this weird way 
to to who or what they they supposedly are, which obviously is double edged when you have actors playing characters. And so I found that that very disconcerting, and I and and perhaps I'm just very very unused to watching these kind of big epic loud films. I, I found it honestly mildly disturbing <laughs> in that in that sense. I, I found it like I, I felt like I was being sort of hit over the head, um, and. And I and I wonder that this kind of globalized fashion shoot sort of image, you know, yes, it's sort of beautiful, but it's also the kind of use of CGI I find kind of really unpleasant. I sort of had this counter fantasy where I wanted to make a version of June in my living room for five pounds that would be psychologically really insightful, but like visually incredibly rubbish, you know. And I think there's something kind of interesting about about that. And so, I mean, just just to finish there on the point about criticism, I think one of the crises we have that Helen's been outlining. Is this this difficulty of of wanting to have the right line, but not like kind of quite knowing what the right line to take is, and then so that leads to the immediate politicization of art criticism, which obviously mitigates against not only treating the work as the work, right? Not and not looking for authorial intention, not you know, um, not immediately resorting to well, this person meant this film to be a critique of. Of fascism or or whatever, or trying to look for clues in uh, intention, but rather looking at the work itself and uh, in all of its ambivalence and ambiguity. And I think that the, the the comments about possible fascism in in June are, are very badly handled in some of the the, the sort of left wing articles we were looking at. And I think because in a way what they're trying to say is first and foremost, fascism is something over there, and if these people, these bad people, like this cultural product, therefore the cultural product itself is bad or tainted, as opposed to asking a much more interesting question of the book or of the films, which would be something like, if this depicts a kind of authoritarian situation or a Hobbesian image of the world or a world in which everybody is is uh, fundamentally competing and it's a kind of uh, analysis of power and corruption, you know, the, the question would be, how does this it affect how we think of who we are, right? You, it's not it's too easy to say the fascists are always over there, right? The more interesting question is to say, who who do we or what do we identify with or what do we feel in relation to these questions of power? If we can't analyse who is the good or the bad guys, as it were, easily in the film, right? If we actually situate ourselves somewhere in this ambiguity of power and power struggle and, you know, these very mystical questions of, of religion, destiny, and this, this spice, this mysterious substance that is, you know, needed for almost everything. You know, the, the, the question of fascism, if it means anything, is it's, it's a question for everyone. It's not, it's not, and it never is really a question of identifying who the bad guys are or what you're allowed to like and what you're not allowed to like because bad people already like it. So I think there's, there's kind of multiple missing elements of ambivalence and ambiguity, both in the, in the contemporary film um, and in the reception um, of it. So I think my feeling is that I would like to continue reading the books <laughs> um, and, to, you know, come up later with a sort of more synthetic and nuanced understanding of, of what is going on with the books, which, of course, is multi-layered, you know, and not reducible to a single statement that Frank Herbert may or may not have made in, you know, the early 70s. All right. Now it's my turn. The New Dune film is directed by Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve also directed Blade Runner 2049 and Arrival. I hated both of those films. 
They are visually striking. They have a serious tone. But underneath that, they have nothing of substance to say. When I think of Villeneuve, I think of J.J. Abrams and Christopher Nolan. These directors are good at evoking a gritty, intense mood, but they never do anything with that mood. Their films have the feeling of being about something important, but they aren't. By trafficking in the aesthetic of the important, they sell enormous numbers of tickets to banal, inoffensive blockbusters. People want to see films that matter, and these films look like they do. Maybe, if you squint hard enough, you can believe it. The difference between Dune and the new Star Wars is that the new Star Wars films were written to be inoffensive cash cows. Dune is based on a science fiction novel from the 60s, a science fiction novel that became a hit in large part because it is deeply weird. In Frank Herbert's novel, a Butlerian jihad has been fought against machines. There are no computers, no AI, and very little technological development. With no major technological disruptions, the economy ossifies into a neo-feudal imperial system. There's an emperor with noble families governing planets. One of these planets, Arrakis, provides a fuel source that allows interstellar travel. The fuel is called spice melange. The native people, the Fremen, revere the spice and use it as a hallucinogenic drug. The noble families mine Arrakis for spice and the Fremen attacked the miners in an endless guerrilla war. At the start of the novel, the emperor takes Arrakis from one family and gives it to another. The new family is called House Atreides. They hope to find a way to ally with the Fremen, but before they can get comfortable, they fall victim to a plot. It turns out the emperor only gave Arrakis to House Atreides to lure House Atreides to an unfamiliar environment. The head of House Atreides is killed, but his son, Paul, escapes into the desert, where he joins the Fremen. Paul eventually becomes their leader, and he ultimately leads the Fremen to victory over the empire. With the help of the Fremen, Paul establishes a despotism that is no better than the empire which preceded it, and he kills an enormous number of people along the way. There are a lot of vaguely political elements here, and you could spend a lot of time ostensibly unpacking them. The fight over the spice is a lot like our fights over oil. The Fremen Rebellion is reminiscent of 60s Third World Marxism. The declining empire might remind you of Rome, or the Ottomans, or America. Paul, an aristocrat who nevertheless leads a lumpen proletarian revolution, might remind you of the lawgivers and legislators in history and myth, the class traders who always play a role in major social transitions. Or he might remind you of Ho Chi Minh, or Pol Pot, men who received Western educations in France and then led revolutionary movements in France's colonies. Dune also features a lot of religious mysticism, though it is strongly suggested at every point that the religions of Dune are planted by the upper classes as a tool of dominating the lower orders. The Fremen are predisposed to view Paul as their guy because they have been given a religion that makes them susceptible to his charisma. There's an ecological angle, too. The Fremen hope to make the deserts of Arrakis bloom. Many of the individual elements in Dune are interesting, though I've always felt the novel adds up to less than the sum of its parts. It achieves its strange mix of themes by two implausible conceits. The first is that you can have a heavily industrial galaxy-spanning society in which technology is totally stagnant and computers are completely suppressed. The second is that it gives some of its characters bizarre powers. Paul has a voice, which you can use to make people do things. Paul also has visions that enable him to predict the future. 
Paul's mother is part of an order that has engaged in a centuries-long breeding program to produce a special one. Dune is interesting because it includes a lot of things that don't make it into most science fiction novels. It has religion, ecology, feudalism, giant sandworms. But Dune also has a chosen one, and it has hokey powers that allow political problems to be solved by non-political means. Dune therefore features a lot of serious themes, but it can't do anything especially interesting with them. There is no political solution to the questions Dune poses. Paul takes over the galaxy because he's special and because other special people have rigged the Fremen religion to make them think that Paul is special. What's the point of it then? Herbert's point is that even if the third world Marxists won, they wouldn't make the world a better place. The great man of history can't solve all the world's problems, even if the special one has all the special powers that Paul has. Paul's son, Leto II, becomes one with the sandworms and rules the galaxy for thousands of years as a worm-human hybrid. Then Leto II dies, leaving a power vacuum. The empire collapses, producing a period of anarchy called the scattering. At the end of the scattering, new ruthless powers emerge for more ruthless power struggling. Ultimately, I think this is Dune's appeal. It is a relentlessly negative, pessimistic series focused on the ultimate futility of human attempts to improve the world. At a time when people feel despondent about politics, Dune aesthetically resonates. It doesn't say that much, but it resonates. I think this is why Villeneuve loves Dune. For him, Dune is like Blade Runner 29 or Arrival. It is a mood, a vibe, a sense of the serious. It is ornate and detailed. An immense amount of labor was poured into it but is there mainly to be felt, to be experienced, not to take us anywhere in particular. The point of Dune is to be sublime, to remind us that we are small and our political striving is insignificant, even when it looks highly significant. Paul takes over a planet, he takes over the galaxy, he changes everything, and yet he changes nothing. Is that profound? When you watch or read Dune, it really feels like it is. But when you say it out loud, not so much. It's certainly not the kind of message that is going to get anybody into any trouble. But Dune has a strong pull. In the span of just two months, Jacobin has published three different articles about Dune. One says Dune is a work of reactionary darkness. Another that it's too somber for its own good. And a third that it's apt for an era of capitalist crisis. Why does a socialist magazine make so much out of a science fiction film that mainly exists to subvert superhero tropes. Dune is too aesthetically intoxicating. When you hear about how strange it is, you feel you have to see it. When you see it, it feels like it matters, politically. But for all Dune's political trappings, it's just a sublime deconstruction of the idea of the hero. The weightiness of it has a function. It contributes to the feeling that everything Paul does matters enormously, more than even he knows. But it's all misdirection. The more important Paul feels, the more disquieting it is when we discover that ultimately he kills a lot of people en route to taking the galaxy right back where it started. The more you buy into Paul as the hero, the more affecting the novel is when it pulls the rug out from under you. This is why Herbert poured so much effort into filling these novels with cultural details. It's also why Villeneuve is the perfect director for this film. There's no one better than Villeneuve at making small nothings feel enormously important. He is the master of the sublime nothing. Insofar as we want something from Blade Runner 2049 and Arrival, they are terrible films. 
But in Dune, the whole point is to make nothing feel like something. The more nothing feels like something, the more Dune can succeed in its deconstruction of the hero. The novels and films have no substantive political goals beyond this. What you say reminds me of a line that is in the film about two thousand the way through. The mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. I wrote that down earlier when I was watching it. Interesting. I mean... I, I wasn't there for the uh, Tarkovsky episode where I know you guys disagreed. I, I'm going to have to disagree with you about Denny Villeneuve. Not about Arrival and 2049 per se, but his earlier films, Incendie, is quite the opposite of overladen nothings. It's a very stripped back film. And it is incredible. I seen it that is one. incredible. Um, what I would say his very special skill is. Are these um, narratives that, so prisoners, these maze-like narratives, prisoners, um, 2049, arrival, where he is able to uh, do something that is very difficult to do, i.e. follow this narrative line without being completely confusing and obfuscatory to reveal something that is sort of like prism-like in its very structure. So I do appreciate that. But I have to say as well, you know, Nina, like the, the too muchness of it. And I had a migraine when I was at the cinema, so I put it down to that. But I wasn't enjoying it so much when I was, I did leave and I usually would just power on through. And I much preferred it watching it just on my laptop. It it was very, yeah, the, the music is, is a lot. And it is interesting, this reduction to the fit. Well, first of all, because I, I think that, I talk about this a lot. It's not, I do appreciate sort of reflective um, films that have more sort of space and not much happening. I've sort of brought up on those kinds of films, but I actually think that the films with greatest emancipatory potential are ones that aren't necessarily, don't have necessarily have the appearance of something, um, you know, worthy, but that actually take us on a subjective journey that lead us by desire to some point of contradiction, which they always do. And this is the thing. So, so film is a medium that can contain with it contradiction, as can all great art, which is the point that I think Nina was making, which anybody who has done certainly undergraduate uh, literature at Cambridge, the, the, the answer they're always looking for is, art is like a kaleidoscope. Contradiction, we can't come to one single point about it. You know, it's precisely ambivalent. It is not prescriptive. And it is something that can help us reflect on whatever because it is precisely not prescriptive. So yeah, like art as contradiction, art as some kind of analysis without conclusion, there is some sort of ambiguity and ambivalence. Which, yeah, I mean, we're not saying, you know, obviously that that maybe ties into this idea of, um, what is it? The mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. But at the same time, that contradictory nature of art can lead us to an understanding about existence that is a problem to be solved through the embrace of contradiction, in my opinion. But um, yeah, I did really like your point, you know, about the reduction to face. Which is interesting. So one of the characters, interestingly, um, a friend of mine is in this film and he has a very interesting face. And I think um, obviously film is a short, riven art form where lots is compacted. So, you know, there's sort of cer certain like aesthetic shorthands that are used and face is one of them. But obviously you don't want to completely reduce it to just this sort of like oh, doesn't he look crazy? This must be a whole universe contained within it, which is just some kind of like whatever received wisdom we'll share. So there's a character in it quite early um, that's played by Benjamin Clementine, who's this 
amazing performer, absolutely incredible musician. Um, but anyway, he has a very interesting face and he was like a, a priest who comes with the, who comes down to the house of treaties to like kind of present the, the order from the emperor. And it was, it was very much, it did strike me as like, this is a casting for face. His face is interesting face. And this sort of, um, type of acting that is quite reduced, that doesn't require acting per se, because it is all there in the, whatever this veil presents to the audience. But I will say that this guy is an absolutely incredible performer. Check him out. Um, yeah, I mean, just, yes. just just on this point, I mean, you know, let me, let me be clear, I suppose, you know, look, I, you know, I, I love Pasolini and Pasolini is obsessed with the face, right? Pas- Pasolini thinks that in a way the face is history the face tells you everything and 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 theorem in a way is is partly about the 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 mysterious kernel that is expressed in in the face of the visitor in Terence Stamp's character um and so much of his film is about this kind it's about physiognomy and it's about the transformatory capacity of on the one hand kind of capitalism to to change anthropology and elsewhere he'll talk about anthropological genocide in the way in which consumerism makes everybody look the same and and on the other it's it's a reflection on catholicism and christianity and religion and communism and so on and and, and obviously the face is extremely important when we think about levinas and agamben and um various ethical and philosophical theories and and no more so than than recently which is agamben's point about masks amongst other things um so it's it's not so much that they, that i have an a priori issue with cinema in the face i think that the cinema is obviously the, you know in in a way the the best medium <laughs> for, for exploring this this issue um i suppose what my objection is this kind of reduction and, and i think you've got my point i mean it's just that you know the the characters in a way i, I know i know and if it's purely aestheticized, everyone is in a way only their face and body. And you know, mm-hmm. the film is filmed with beautiful people. You know, as you say, like these are incredible looking people in different ways. Um, and d- d- but none of their motivation is like <laughs> remotely transparent, and so you don't have any way of understanding their expressions or their gestures. I suppose beyond mm-hmm. merely the superficial. I mean, it is, it is, a, there's a lot of characters. Interesting. I mean, there's a lot of time spent on Paul, right? You know, and maybe the same, your same point can, can, can be, um, you know, we can, we can make it with, with him and he's on screen for a long time. So surely there should be a lot of development rather than just sort of this kind of like, but um, yeah, a lot of these sort of characters come and go and uh, they're just sort of there. But I, in, in terms of, yeah, if anything's Orientalist, this sort of like, that there is some kind of promise within the face in a way that, that there is some like, and this is, this is precisely what sort of like modeling is, you know, and, and it, the, the aesthetic of the model changes with every era. Obviously there's certain similar, you know, there's a certain aesthetic criterion, but, but right now there's a sort of, um, let's say how, like what special, well, in, in this sort of uh, kind of like ideological era where, some encounter with some kind of, um, let's say, suffering of some kind or some kind of experience, moral experience gets you closer to some kind of transcendent truth. So when a, when an ex-person is selling 
uh, an object as a model, you are projecting onto that or you sort of, the, the ideological sort of screen is saying, this person is a bearer of some kind of closeness to the transcendent possibility of overcoming lack because they have experienced some worthy moral experience through suffering. Um, so for instance, right now, there's a, a skincare brand that I use where everybody who is portrayed in the images right now, they have some kind of like strangeness in their face. So a uniqueness, let's say they might be sort of darker skinned with sort of a bright blonde, strawberry blonde, curly hair or something, something unique. Um, which again, this uniqueness speaks to the fact that you have some singular truth, which you don't because you're just a speaking subject like everybody else. But they all have very, very bad acne, which is, you know, sort of a, a, a latest turn of some kind of like ethical um, category because of your experience of having some random skin issue. <laughs> Which is strange, given it's just really obvious the sort of like the contradiction there where this this product is selling something that's supposed to overcome acne, for instance. But it's you are there proud in all of your, you know, your standing up without makeup, in all your blemishes, in your realness, and you're going out there to seize the day. So yeah, the, the, there's always some sort of like silly non-transcendent depicted in the model. You're perfect the way you are, but please buy this. Exactly. <laughs> Except the person has to be very singular in their, the way they are us, which is ridiculous. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, thinking about the, the lead actor who plays Paul, Timothy Chalamet, if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, he was in the Netflix film The King a few years ago, and he does the same kind of highly stylized Chalamet promotional face on the promotional material for The King as he does for the promotional material for Dune. And I saw a, a clip of some event that he was at with Zendaya, who plays Chani in this film. And they were having fun and, and goofing off. And then they needed to pose for the camera. And immediately they had to completely strip out all of their motion and all of the emotion in their faces and do the, the kind of stone, I am making Dune promotional material face. And it really hit home just how purposeful that lack of emotion is. I think sometimes when we see actors who, who do this, we think it's because they can't do emotion or can't play emotion, but they've often been told not to do it. They have often been put into a situation where they're supposed to function mainly as a model. And that doesn't necessarily mean they couldn't do that in some other context, but they may not get the opportunity to do that in the particular thing they've been cast in. I mean, different yeah, different epochs and different styles have different styles of acting, right? You know, and it's interesting. I, we talked about Squid Game a little bit over text, but that the style of acting in Squid Game is very different to a lot of what we see in sort of serious West, serious quote unquote Western cinema. Obviously, we can think of post-drive Ryan Gosling, the sort of like, and I, I have to say, I appreciate this kind of acting because I feel like the um, the lack of projection of something on the part of the actor does engage a little bit less investment on the part of the viewer often. But there is a sort of, it does become kind of, um, you know, cliche, this sort of. I, I think, I mean, maybe it's some sort of preference, but like, you know, I, I, 
I would like to hear what they're saying, you know. <laughs> like, oh, absolutely. The, the, I just the conversa- do not It's this. like conversation is in, important. Like conversation is not just um, an addendum to a face. Like, you know, uh, if you if you, if characters yeah. are discussing yeah. something like, uh, I don't know, an idea or, or something that is strategy or something meaningful or they're expressing like a concern, it's like, I want to know what it is. <laughs> I, do, I don't want to like guess from their like, well, part of this is the the overall decline in the importance of conversation in Western cinema, which has been brought on by the globalization of Western cinema and the need to sell American films to non-native English speaking audiences. Yeah. I mean, if you watch films from the 1940s or 1950s, or 60s, there's so much talking in them. And I, yeah. I love these. I love comedies in the 1940s because you often have these amazing female characters who are incredibly witty. And there's all this like witty banter between men and women in these films. Exactly. And they're so like, they're so kind of cute and astute and funny and insightful. And you and it, it's all about the conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, Woody, Woody Allen, obviously... Now, I mean, now he's sort of Mr. Pariah, but he does this a lot. But it's interesting as well, because often you get these sort of like, you know, who knows why a film um, catches on? It's almost sort of like the part of the draw, this sort of like Everest like obsession that filmmakers get is the impossibility of being able to capture what film is and what it does. It's a sort of like medium that goes on forever but there are always these sort of like little things that the latest thing is you can do this you can't do this and often a piece of work especially early in terms of who's going to get funding and where you know these sort of like uh little things you've made up things that you can hook your hat on which are just trends basically which again in in a in a in a marketplace where risk is never taken you just get end up getting the same stuff like the documentary with the moody talking head and the slow drone especially crime crime documentaries. I mean, I watch loads of them, but yeah, it's always the same, but you get these. And it, as I say, the way film is funded, um, it's difficult, you know, money has to be raised, but it, there's such a level of risk aversion. But there are one of the things that has become a thing over recent years is um, as little dialogue as possible because, you know, so of course, show don't tell. This is, this is supposed to be to, to quote the film again, the mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality experience. So let's say the film is a reality experience. We don't want somebody telling you exactly, think this, do this, although the score often does this for you and the visuals. But, um, you know, we have to, we, we're great artists, we're poets. We can't say explicitly what's what, what the audience has to has to think. We must convey it with as little words as possible. It's always that the, the fewer words said, the greater the artwork. And another thing that is so annoying is whether like you can't do voiceover for the same reason. But I fucking love voiceover. I always end my films with voiceover. So a conversation, <laughs> a conversation is not the omniscient narrator, right? Like mm-hmm. Exactly. Me, like words are not didactic by virtue of being I words. I mean, it's like yeah, you, exactly. you could achieve enormous power. And there's lots of these kind of quasi-mythical statements like in the book, right? You just referenced some, you know, and I think so much more could be made of these sorts of like tones of voices and, you know, these different ways of speaking and, you know, what, who is being commanded and what's being expressed. And it, I mean, it is done quite well in the book. I think all of those different tonalities and, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I, I think I'm, I, I think, you know, when I but, think of like thing, films like my dinner with Andre, you know, this is mm-hmm. a film that is nothing but a conversation between two men at dinner in New York. And it's an incredible film. And I think it's an amazing, beautiful film. And it goes to all of these very, very interesting places about, you know, dark things, strange things, you know, weird experiences, fantasy, 
you know, and I, and I suppose it's 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 maybe I'm I'm stuck in an era of cinema making, which is which is not this fashion shoot thing, you know, whatever is going on. Well, part of the trouble, right, is that as market incentives dictate that particular kinds of art have to be made. It's not helpful to anybody if the standards of what counts as good art are too far separated from the standards of what counts as marketable art. Well, yeah. So gradually, as it becomes, yeah, yeah. Mar- you know, from a market standpoint, the case that less dialogue is better, we must become artistically persuaded that that is true so that the people who are mm-hmm. making those films can feel that they are making artistically great films. So the standard of good taste has to come into alignment with the market incentive. But these are films that nobody loves. Yeah, yeah, precisely. The reason why people love films is because they have character. Mm-hmm. The films themselves have Absolutely. character. You know, that yeah. they have um, ambivalences or curiosities or strangeness or, you know, or, or humanity. You know, people don't exactly. love films because they evoke a vibe. I mean, a vibe is <laughs> what? A passing thing. I don't you watch a music video. And you, you do get, it's funny, interestingly, often. I mean, I. I well, A, you get the, the regurgitation of it, the aesthetic, but it's like, well, you know, I was, I was in a shop the other day and Amy Winehouse was on. You're like, right, this is somebody whose voice is identifiable. You know, this is somebody who who really says something through her aesthetic that it's it's unique. And you would think that, you know, it's about, it's about, as you say, character, character both of the characters and of the film and the humanity of the piece, precisely because it expresses some kind of... Um, messiness, uniqueness, and character that perhaps the author of the work can provide or whatever. Um, But you see this so much in the sort of emerging arts scene where you are rewarded through prestige by imitating a tone and a vibe and whatever the latest thing is. And it usually goes on for a certain period of time. And it can be very impressive sometimes to see a work and it often will do like the festival circuit, you know, and they're very prestigious festivals. But as as things become more uh, corporatized and um, the, the sort of capitalist pressures, even of things like festivals, the line becomes narrow, 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 and everything starts to look the same. Everything starts to look the same. This literally the same camera, the same the same color grade, the same everything. And it, I don't know how far you can call that art. And almost if you were doing something unique. It is seen as shocking. Oh, you can't do that. What do we do with this? What are we supposed to do with this? Whereas that's sort of literally the point of art, I think. Well, it it starts by pitching itself as if it is different, right? Way back when American films were full of talking, foreign language films were considered artistic and auteur in part Mm -hmm. because they didn't have all that talking, because they were more action-based or because they were more vibe-based, because they were quieter, they were pitched as more subtle, right? Then as the American hegemony over film deteriorates, the same economic incentives occur in American cinema to be less talky and more marketable Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. to have more elements that translate to other cultures, right? So all of that is lionized as learning from the foreign language cinemas Uh, uh, around the world to not be so heavy handed and to not beat people over the head with dialogue and explicit cultural reference points. Right. So it starts by pitching itself as adopting more artistic characteristics, but it's really adapting to the market. Exactly. It's it's precisely the same as this sort of Jacobinesque 
you know, it's obfuscation, right, of the fact that this is this is a market system, and uh, it's using aesthetics to 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 mystify the fact that what is being sold is an ideological product, essentially. Um, yeah. So the the critique of us that someone might be making is, well, we're just nostalgic for a time when uh, Anglophone cinema was hegemonic. And in a world where there is no particular language which is hegemonic, then all films will have to be made in a more accessible way and nobody will really be able to talk in films and have a film that's marketable. And if we really are for the downfall of imperialism, we should celebrate that that films will not say anything because there will always be someone who wouldn't understand. Perfectly happy to watch films with subtitles. I mean, oh, I'm all for national cinema of all different nations. I mean, I watch loads exactly. of cinema. So, I mean, and, and you know, how, multiply worldly. I think what what's the, what this new um, June represents, though, is a kind of this kind of weak globalised image, in fact, of an of a empire in decline. Um, you know, it's it, this isn't, I don't know, it's kind of... Um, yeah, it's sort of like the the cinema man's burden. <laughs> it's sort of I don't know. It, it, oh, we're willing to to put up with subtitles, but the market as a whole is not. Wow, really? Really? I don't know. I, I the thing is, what I see right now, interestingly, is I think you know. So we we talked about Squid Game. Parasite, I think, is a is a very good film, and I think it does actually make an interesting critique, and. I think that, so talking about, um, oh, you know, X person is nostalgic for a time when Western film was uh, hegemonic. Well, I actually think that the um, the b- belief that it being in another language um, gives, and you see that, so there is, a, there is a push toward world cinema. I actually do make film in lots of different languages because I think language, like all the other elements of a film, says something. So I think it's an aesthetic choice. Um, obviously, one maybe is more or less familiar with a certain language, but I think there are, you know, there's something to language as a function of the film. But to believe that there is a promise within a given language or a trueness or a oneness from a, say, South Korean perspective, that the South Korean filmmaker is able to make a critique of surplus value that a Western filmmaker is not able to make is precisely orientalist, racist, the same logic as colonialism. There is no promise in the other. There's no promise. There's no promise. See, the, the point I would raise uh, in, against the hypothetical critique that I offered <laughs> is that during the era when we had all of these very, very talky American films, the films that were most popular were those talky American films. And they were popular among people living in countries where English language skills were not heavily developed. People were more interested in hearing Americans talk about situations that were culturally unfamiliar to them, that were different from their own country, that they couldn't entirely imagine themselves in. They had more fun putting the, imagining themselves in America in that kind of conversation than they had with their own films that were made in their own language. And that's why America developed the level of soft power and and global influence through its film industry that it developed. And by trying to pander to the audience by not having dialogue, 
American cinema is making itself more like other kinds of cinema and diminishing what is distinctive about it and diminishing its cultural and global impact. And so uh, what runs down the American cultural position is the things that it does to try to maintain that position rather than the things which it previously did, which enabled it to be different. It was different because it was the one type of cinema where there was words, where there was a lot of dialogue. That's what made it popular. That's what caused the American ideology to spread all over the place. Do you know who makes really amazing um, wordy films in single settings? I think partly because he has to, because he's limited in um, where he can shoot and how he can shoot things. Raymond Polanski. Did you see Carnage? Yeah. So I love that film. Venus and Furs in Fur. I think without the S is his version. Amazing. Carnage would be fun to do. Yeah, Carnage is a brilliant on this film. Show. It's a brilliant film. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant film. Um, yeah, it's interesting in terms of so in a less talkative film, and we have potentially more cinema of the face. Rather than cinema of, you know, the sort of like the movie star. I don't know if it, the type of what a movie star is. We think about golden age movie stars compared to actors of today. In terms of this dialogue versus presence or face. <laughs> One is cast for the face rather than the character. But then interestingly, cinema has become has come full circle because we're back almost of a silent movie. And you know, yeah. this was devastating for a lot of silent movie stars who were amazing at this and you know, <laughs> but couldn't make the transition yeah. to talkies, right? Because they were employed for a different reason. Um mm -hmm. because they had a different control of the face and they didn't necessarily have a cinematic voice. So I mean it's you know, one has to ask, is cinema returning to uh <laughs> to this, I mean, the, the the Zimmer soundtrack virtually makes this a silent movie in a way. It's a it's a it's a sonic film, but it's not a conversational film. But in the silent film, the actor has to tell you what to feel with the face, whereas in this film, Hans Zimmer tells you how to feel with the music. So the face can be stone stone cold. So you have the face is important, but it's important because it doesn't move rather than because it does. And cinema is 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 a music video. Then, as as you said. Helen said, I think, you know, that it's the music video fashion shootification of everything. So everything is a brand then of itself. Cinema is just a brand. It's like, this is what cinema is. It's branding. It's itself. a promo of, it's, yeah, it's a promo of this, of, a, of, of, let's say if, if the narrative is one that is ideological, <laughs> it's a music video for ideology, which is depressing. Um, but it's not clear what it's exactly promoting. It's apart from it itself. Uh, the ideology has become less substantive in a cold no, but the war ideology context, is is the is the lack of substantiveness in the first place. Right, right. Because in a Cold War context, the American film is selling you on an American value set, an American way of thinking about who you are, an American legitimation narrative, American political system, political values, economic system. What you're getting now is a kind of purposeful inclusion of that which was excluded. And the film is to be morally celebrated on the basis that it includes that which was excluded. And its way of doing this is to water down its content, because to have content is to say something which is to not say something else. 
And so you can't say anything because if you did say something, then something else would not be said. This is precisely also just in terms of these these little hang hang your hat on little nonsenses that one often gets um, berated with early in one's career as one is formed into a performer um, of an ability to convey that which is deemed acceptable by ideology. Uh, is not saying and is precisely you can't have a point. So historically, I mean, in my opinion, the greatest works of any f- fiction or even art come from theme. They're writing from theme, so they are saying something. And they, this theme can be handled in multiplicitous, ambivalent, complex ways. But essentially, you are you are state you you're writing from theme. But now it is again that that's deemed to be too prescriptive. Where I I would absolutely argue the opposite and that the authoritarianism is precisely this this dance of nothing just like the dance of nothing of on the part of the viewer do you have the right assessment of this nothing um yeah i I, it's it's very sad it's very sad it upsets me greatly well maybe we'll be able to cheer ourselves up on the b-side which we're gonna go record now So I hope that you'll join us for that, and if for whatever reason you can't, we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.